Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Bensvi. This podcast is an opportunity for me to speak with some of the most interesting people I know, either with amazing talents or achievements or unbelievable life stories or just invaluable insights into areas which they have dedicated their lives to studying. I sit down with these amazing individuals from across the planet and I try to ask them questions that will hopefully help you, the listener, extract something valuable or learn something new or just hopefully get inspired by. You can find all the episodes for the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms such as iTunes, Spotify, Google, Overcast, iHeartRadio, literally all of them, it's there. Uh, if you love the show, if it adds value to your life in any way, shape, or form, please, please leave reviews on iTunes. It really helps grow the podcast. It puts it up there so more people can see it. You can also find all the episodes and everything else, all the information that's updated regularly on the website, which is RoyBensvi.com, R-O-Y-B-E-N-T-Z-V-I.com, and you can sign up for updates as well. Also been updating the YouTube channel, so I've been uploading old episodes pretty much on a daily basis, so you can find it there. And in the future, I hope to make video podcasting as well. If that's something you guys want to check out and are interested in, please shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And also make sure to check out the social media platforms, Instagram and Twitter. I post there daily. And lastly, if you guys want to support and help grow the podcast, please go to Buy Me a Coffee or Anchor or Patreon. It is an endeavor to grow this podcast and make it what it should be. And uh, it takes a village. So I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. I, you know, I see that there are literally listeners from all over the world in each and every country. So thank you to everyone and on to the show. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. This week, I am happy to have Chief Felton, also known as Scuba Mermaid. She is a technical diving instructor originally from the UK, but up until probably around March or April last year when COVID hit, she worked out of Indonesia with some of the most beautiful waters, coral reefs, probably colors and everything in between. It's a, it's a beautiful place just from the, I've never been, but the pictures look amazing. So I was happy to have Chi on. We discussed everything, or at least as far as I know, that I could tell relating to diving. I am a complete novice. I know nothing about diving, although I tried it a couple of times and almost, uh, I think I had a bit of a um, LSD trip on one of them, but we actually go into that on the podcast. So if you stay tuned, you'll find out about it. And yeah, she talks about everything from technical diving to free diving to caving and rebreathing, all these other facets of diving that I knew nothing about. And so I was happy to have her on to explain it to me. She communicates it in a great, great way. I like when people talk, especially when you know nothing about a topic, you want someone to explain it to you in the most basic of ways. That way you can really soak in all that information. Sometimes people like to use fancy words and make it seem like it's more than it is. But if you understand something really well, you can just explain it in the most basic of ways. She did a great job. This was a really, really fun episode. We said we will probably do another one sometime later this year. I hope we do. Maybe when she gets back to Indonesia after this whole thing is over, you know, holding a 
crossing our fingers. Hopefully everything goes according to plan later this year. We don't know. So yeah, if you are interested in diving, actually we talk about more than diving later in the episode. We definitely talk about some environmental stuff, social media stuff, just about focusing and and being present in the moment, meditation. Yeah, we cover a, a wide range of topics towards the end. So listen to the whole thing, help you guys enjoy it. And yeah, let's just jump right in. Without further ado, here is Chief Felton. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Hey, Chi. Hi. How you doing? Am Very I pronouncing good, that? Thanks. I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, Chief, that is right. Yeah, Chief Felton. That's right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm just. I'm really bad with names. I've, I have a history of just destroying names, so I always want to make sure I'm saying it correctly. Oh, I am terrible with names, um, but luckily most people um, don't know how to pronounce my name, so I don't feel so bad. <laughs> what are some of the ways that they kind of butcher it? Um, I don't know. Most commonly it's chai, but it it, it depends on where they're from. So if they're mm-hmm. Italian, they might say ki or kai, or, but usually people ask me. Yeah. So that's yeah. okay. Well, that's good. I uh, I actually ended up changing my name altogether. Not changing it, uh, shortening it, because I grew up when I, so I kind of grew up all over. I I was in Africa. I was in all these different places, and they could never pronounce my name correctly. So I was like, let me just shorten it to Roy. Super simple. <laughs> and, what was it before? Uh, Roy. So it'll be like another like ie at the end, and oh. it would have. And I didn't actually even know how to write it, so it would reflect what it sounded because I don't think that really exists in English. So I was just like, Roy, shorter, easier. And where is it from? Your Israel. name? Oh. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the thing. When you when you're with English speakers, it's it's common to use nicknames anyway. Yeah. So it's easy that way. Yeah. And I mean languages are a tough one. I mean, my wife, her parents are originally from India. She was born here. But there's a lot of like when I meet like aunties and everyone that some of the names are so difficult to pronounce. I'm like, oh, what is it again? I'm sorry. <laughs> I just I so I try to stick. To, I'll stick to like auntie or something. It's just I, I'm oh, like, that's the great thing about Asia. Everyone is auntie or uncle yeah. or sister or brother. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about you. You were where were you born? Uh, you know, what is your background? Well, I was born in the UK. Um, in England, in the East Midlands. It's quite a small place anyway. Um, But that's where I was born and grew up. And um, I also moved in and out of London pretty much my whole life. And um, and I went to university there and and lived there until I left the UK to um, pursue a diving career. I don't remember how long ago that was, maybe seven years or eight years ago, something like that. (laughs) <laughs> what made you decide to to try diving as a uh, vocation rather than just a, uh, a hobby? Well, I kind of fell into it by accident. Um, it's it's a long story, um, but why? We have time. <laughs> but why I started working in diving was really because I just wanted to do it all the time. And um, my instructor, uh, instructors at the time, 
um, kept recommending me, oh, why don't you try the dive master course? Um, and so I did it. And then they were like, oh, you know, it's kind of difficult to get a job as a dive master if you're working abroad um, because usually they hire local people. So why don't you become an instructor? And that's really how it happens. Um, and I just ended up really loving it. Is Are there a lot of uh, women uh, dive masters? I don't, I don't, uh, is there like another level or is dive master like the highest level? So it goes from, well, there are lots of like recreational, let's say fun diving levels. And then the first um, professional level to diving is dive master. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, other, some people might call it a dive guide. Um, so a dive master is someone who can take you scuba diving, show you around, help you with basic things. Um, and, um, sometimes they even plan the dives. Um, they're maybe the main coordinator of the dive boat or the dive trip. Um, and then, so you have to be a dive master. That's the first professional level. And I mean, I suppose there, there may be intermediate levels depending on which agency you're with. So you might become an assistant instructor before you become an instructor. Um, but that's really the next level up, um, the next main level up from dive master. So it goes dive master, instructor. And then beyond that, I mean, um, there are so many different levels to instructors or specialties um, that you can focus on or different avenues you can work in. Um, so it's just really specific to um, what kind of diving you're doing, um, maybe your experience and what you want to teach. Um, so for me, obviously, I, I became a dive master, then an, an assistant instructor, then instructor. Um, then I was teaching specialties like um, nitrox diving, night diving, um, underwater photography. And then after that, I decided um, that I wanted to teach technical diving. Um, which took a few years to train for. And then after that, I thought I was done. Um, but then I got interested in uh, rebreather diving and became a rebreather diver and then decided that I wanted to be an instructor. And um, and it hasn't stopped since. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I, I, have a, I have a lot of questions. Um, Okay. One, <laughs> what is technical diving? And then two, what is a rebreather? Re mm -hmm. what, what are those two things? Okay, so for those who don't know, um, scuba diving is um, defined as breathing from compressed air or breathing compressed air from a tank underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the basics of scuba diving. Usually um, a normal or let's say recreational beginner level diver will dive with air in their tanks. And air is made up of 21% oxygen, 79% nitrogen. Um, that's as well in the atmosphere. That's what human beings breathe. Yeah. Um, as you progress um, up the levels, I would say, with scuba diving, or you learn more about the theory into it, um, you can then increase the amount of oxygen in your tank. Um, so as a recreational diver, you can dive anything from 21% oxygen to 40% oxygen in your tank if you take a course. Um, technical diving or technical divers um, Usually they use more than one type of breathing gas. So they might use air 
And then they might have a, a separate tank and have what we call nitrox, which is enriched air. It's basically um, breathing gas with more than 21% oxygen inside it. And, um, and, and why do they do that? The reason why they do that is generally because technical divers um, most commonly stay down underwater longer um, or dive deeper. And because the because underwater is a pressurized environment, water weighs more than air, um, your body takes a larger amount of oxygen, but also nitrogen. So your tissues become what we call saturated with these gases. And um, as far as we know, there are no long-term effects or negative effects from it at all. Um, once you surface, once you exit the pressurized environment of the of the water, um, your body naturally uh, off-gasses these gases. So, but it does pose an issue if you ascend very quickly from depth. So if you go from a very high pressure environment to a very low pressure environment, or if you go, for example, to sea level, um, it can cause what we call decompression illness, um, which is when typically nitrogen escapes from your tissues too fast and therefore can cause bubbles. It's all um, part of a, a lot more detailed theory that I won't go into right now. Um, <laughs> that's when they put them in those in those chambers, right? When if, if you come up surface too quickly. That's right. Yeah, it is a possibility. Yeah, that's one of the treatments. Um, it's not... It, it's definitely something every scuba diver should know about and what you learn about usually on your first day of a scuba diving course. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but when it's all pieced together in the theory and you have every um, detail, it makes sense. And um, technical divers generally, um, because we stay down longer or because we go deeper, we have more nitrogen on our bodies. So it takes longer to get rid of that nitrogen. Um, now, there is one way that you could do it, which was just go up really, really slowly and breathe a whole lot of air, but you probably need a lot of tanks. And in general, studies have shown that this way of diving isn't necessarily the safest way. So what technical divers do is they take a higher percentage of oxygen breathing gas and they switch gases during their dive, during their ascent. And what it helps, it, because they're taking less nitrogen in and more oxygen in, it helps off-gas the nitrogen that they've already um, absorbed earlier before. Um, yeah, so it's what, we, it's what we call accelerated decompression. Wow. Um, so that's, it, it sounds very complicated, <laughs> but if you start from the beginning, you know, if you're already a scuba diver or if you're already um, a nitrox diver, then this will, this should all make sense. Yeah. And really technical diving is just taking it to another level. Some people say that technical diving, or they might think that technical diving is a more dangerous type of diving. And in some ways, I would say it is um, because you're using more advanced equipment. You know, there are a lot more risks, um, but that's only if you don't, if you misuse it or if you um, don't have a background, don't have the experience. Um, 
once you do the training, everything prepares you to use this equipment. I would say um, the main focus of technical diving versus perhaps recreational diving, and this is just in my view, is that um, technical diving is more about risk management. Um, so it's really focused on planning and safety strategies and um, managing any risks that there might be. Um, and really it's more about, um, it's what we call being a thinking diver instead of just grabbing the equipment, going down, you know, and following whatever your dive computer says, um, which is usually what every, what everyone should be doing anyway. Um, it's more about planning ahead and, um, planning, making sure that you have everything that you need for the dive that you're doing and making sure everything's safe, um, doing extra safety checks, testing your equipment, working as a team. Um, it's for some, it could be seen as quite a lot of work, but it depends really what your goals are. It's not for everyone. And I understand that. Um, but the people that I work with, the people that I teach, um, you know, they're interested in improving their skills, um, learning more about the theory, about decompression theory, um, and pro possibly or probably staying down longer or going deeper, um, maybe for a specific reason. Um, some people do technical diving because they want to see a certain shipwreck um, that's a little bit too deep for a recreational diver or they'd like to go into a cave or um, a mine. Um, and some people just do it to test their limits, you know, to in improve their training and improve their skills. And then uh, rebreather? Um, rebreather is um, a bit different to scuba. So scuba is when you're breathing um, compressed air and um, it goes through um, what we call a regulator or a pressure regulator. Yeah. Um, and then you breathe it in at ambient pressure and then you exhale. And as you exhale, your bubbles go into the water column. So I'm sure even if people don't know much about scuba diving, they can picture a scuba diver, you know, swimming along the reef with a tank on their back and bubbles behind them. Yeah. Um, rebreather is, um, basically equipment it's um it's still technically scuba equipment um because you're still breathing compressed from a compressed tank um but your exhaled gases don't get expelled into the water column or not all of your exit all of your exhaled air oh, let's say okay so it cycles so it's around circulation yeah exactly oh, it wow. cycles around in what we call the loop and um it uh, your rebreather or the equipment that you use and everything that you put into it um, will absorb the carbon dioxide and add in little extra bits of oxygen that you're metabolizing. So it's, it's again, a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the basic, the way it works. It's okay. actually the well, oldest form of scuba diving. And what's, oh, really? Wow. Yes, yeah. What's the benefit to that versus, I guess, the regular scuba diving? Well, there are quite a lot of benefits. Um, so a lot of people would say maybe the main benefit is not having um, lots of bubbles. And when you're breathing um, regular scuba, 
and you're exhaling bubbles. I suppose some people might not notice, but you can hear it. Uh, maybe you've seen in a video of scuba divers and you can kind of hear them exhaling bubbles. When you're on a rebreather, it's very quiet. Um, you're not exhaling bubbles all the time. So you can hear the sounds of wherever you are, where it be the ocean or just um, silence. So um, that's, that's one benefit. Um, another benefit could be that you're not wasting your exhaled air because, you know, when you breathe in, you don't actually use the entire 21% of oxygen in that breath um, to metabolize it. A lot of it gets exhaled. So if you're, let's say, breathing into a plastic bag, um, you could probably get quite a few breaths from that before you don't have enough oxygen in there. Um, so what the rebreather does is takes your exhaled gas, adds what you need, take out the dangerous stuff, and then you're reusing it, like recycling it, upcycling it, I guess you could call it. Yeah. So um, the deeper you go um, when you're diving, the the more pressure there is, which means the more volume of gas that you use when you breathe. So for deep divers, to be able to use a rebreather instead of open circuit scuba, which is regular scuba, um, your tanks will be a lot smaller. Um, okay. That's another Because you can use it for longer, right? Because essentially the other one is a finite resource. And this one, it seems based on this description that it because it circulates, uh, there's more of it? That's right, yeah. Okay. Wow, that's interesting. You know, when I, I took a course once many, many years ago in the Mediterranean Sea, and I was like, oh, you know, I really want to do this. Let me try. And I, I took like just, a, I don't know, I think it was like a one star type thing, just super simple. And uh, we went out into, into the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, this was also like jellyfish season. So it was horrific. I was literally just like surrounded by jellyfish everywhere. I was like trying to figure out where they're coming from. And uh, we had to go down to, I believe it was 30 meters. And around like, 28 meters or so i started just hallucinating <laughs> just i started seeing like fantasia type things i was like what is going on here and i remember them telling us about us because of right because of the the oxygen uh, or whatever it was that these that can happen to you right and you get to a certain uh depth and i i, I kind of like started freaking out i was like oh no am i gonna just like take out the thing out of my mouth am i gonna think i'm and i so I went up a little bit and uh, the guy, the, the scuba, um, the, the instructor came up with me and he kind of looked at me in my eyes. And after maybe like 20 or 30 seconds, I was like, all right. And then I went back down. But it was a freaky like probably minute or so where I was like, like LSD hallucinating, like full on. That's what we call narcosis. Um, yeah. Some people call it nitro nitrogen narcosis, but technically it's called gas narcosis because um, you can actually get the effects not just from nitrogen, but also from oxygen. Yeah. So it it's different for different people um, and it's different depth for different people. But for, let's say, one person, for example, at a certain depth, um, they're going to be intaking a higher what we call a partial pressure, which is a percentage of oxygen and nitrogen into their bloodstreams, into their brains. And it does have, it can have, let's say, a hallucinatory effect um, yeah. to some people. That depth will change as well the more you dive and it will. It can even differ day to day. Um, it, the science on it, I think, is still 
it, let's say, in progress. Um, it is something that we know isn't dangerous or doesn't have any long-term effects. Um, so the only danger really is if you, as someone who has narcosis or is feeling it at that time, um, does something silly, like you yeah. said, take your regulator out of your mouth and not put it back in. Um, yeah. then you're in danger, right? <laughs> that, but that would be a problem. Yeah. The most important thing to to consider when you're dealing with or when you're planning a dive with narcosis is to um, be aware of it, um, be aware of the signs and symptoms and know exactly what to do if you start to feel it, which is exactly what you did. Ascend slightly, go a bit of a shallower depth, make sure you're together with your dive buddy or your instructor and let them know, you know, um, if you don't know the signal, the hand signal for narcosis, you could just make one up at the beginning of the dive and just tell each other, okay, so if you got narcosis, we'll just do this. Yeah. Um, usually we do like, usually I do this, which is like crazy. <laughs> Pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. Spinning yeah. circles around you. Like crazy. Yeah. I'm going a bit crazy. Yeah. Um, and it's different for everyone. Um, the first time I dived, uh, to, I think it was a, I think it was actually a bit deeper, maybe 35 meters I felt it. Mm -hmm. And um, then as I dived more and more and started technical diving, it, the depth where I felt it got deeper and deeper as well. So for me now, I would say it's somewhere in between 40 and 50 meters. I feel not. So it still happens to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it oh, still wow. happens to me. I just... Um, I thought it was like a beginner thing where just like in the no. beginning, you know... Okay. Not necessarily, not necessarily. I usually, feel better. Right? <laughs> usually it's, it's, the, it's for, if it's the first time it might happen, it's shallower depth, but that's normal for everyone. I would say if, if I were to describe the feeling of narcosis, I would say, well, I usually tell my students it's depending on your body size or in your metabolism, it's about one to three beers. Um, oh. or a half a glass of wine to, to some people, maybe even a bottle of wine. It depends on you, <laughs> but yeah, it's just that slight inebriation, that, that feeling. So as long as you know what it feels like, you know, when you're at, well, at 21, I'm sure. And you first had your sip of alcohol, um, you get, you feel drunk quite quickly, yeah. but then the more you That's drink, responsible people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for people that don't drink, I'm not sure if I if I do know a, a, a way to describe it. But um, that's usually what I tell my students. I felt like it was an LSD trip. I'll be honest. I was, I, I, it was weird because I was aware. It wasn't like I was like, oh, la, la, la. Yeah, all these, there was like the water started, like the bubbles, like you said, the bubbles from the, the other uh, students kind of formed these weird shapes. And like, I don't know, it was very weird, but I wasn't, like in some sort of a, a bubble, for lack of a better term, I was aware of it, but I was like, all right, I just have to, I don't want to do something stupid. So I like, that's why I send it very quickly. But it was a weird thing where I was like hallucinating, but I was aware that I was hallucinating. But I'm sure if you hadn't been told about this before, oh, if yeah. no one had told you, you, you might have freaked out. Yeah. Uh, which does happen sometimes, yeah. unfortunately. If you have a, a good um, dive instructor or, or guide or buddy or whoever you're diving with, um, then then that usually will help. That's a really important part um, if it's your first time. Have you had that with a student that just started to freak out? 
Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, a few times. Really? I can't even really count. Um, but yeah, it does happen. Um, not everyone, and most people don't. Um, most, everyone feels it. So this is part, this is even part of the training that we do. So for, um, for example, if you were to take a deep diver certification, which is, um, at least for the agencies I work with between 30 and 40 meters. So up to about 130 feet or something, um, we do basically basic cognitive tests underwater. Um, so we just test to see how your brain is working and how it's reacting. So we'll do a test on the surface. It can be something as simple as um, pointing to a slate. Um, it, we, we have these slates, underwater slates, where it's like a grid of maybe nine boxes um, numbered from one to nine, all in random order. And you point to the number one, then you put your finger on your nose, then you point to number two, then you, and, and so on and so forth. And we time it and see how long it takes. And, and most people can do it pretty quickly and pretty easily. Yeah. Um, and then we'll go to a certain depth underwater and try it again there and set a timer. And then after the dive, we'll, sh we'll show you the differences. And, and without a shadow of a doubt, every single person, I don't think it matters how experienced you are, and, or how many times you've done it, it is going to take you longer to do at depth than it would do on the surface because of the effects of narcosis, even if they're very mild. It's like the, when the cop stops you over and he makes you do all the <laughs> drills to check if you're drunk. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> no, no, right. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine, <laughs> officer. But uh, they make you do something similar when you skydive. I, I took a skydiving course um, many, many years ago. And... Um, I think it was the second or third um, jump where they make you do a similar thing. They, you know, hands up here, touch your nose, do all these different things. They want to see that you're aware of what's happening, even when you're dropping at, I don't know how fast from, you know, 14,000, 12,000 feet, whatever it is. So it's, it, I think there's a lot of, uh, probably a lot of parallels between the two. Yeah. I mean, altitude is similar but opposite of scuba diving yeah. because you there is generally thinner air, so less oxygen in the air. Um, so human beings are used to living at sea level, maybe a little bit higher. You know, not many people live at high altitude. The people that do, um, you can see, well, scientists can see that their bodies have adjusted. Um, yeah, people who are, Yeah, exactly. People who are... Um, training to climb a mountain um, might then be in an atmosphere with a little bit less oxygen than normal. Um, so that's, it's going from sea level to a high altitude like you are when you're skydiving is um, similar to or comparable to being underwater and then going to the surface. Yeah. So your body needs to adjust and, you know, you might have, it might have an effect on your brain as well. So it's important to keep an eye on all these things. <laughs> Yeah, it's always crazy to me when I when I um I love like mountaineering and uh there's you know Everest and uh actually not K2 it's mostly in Everest uh where you have the sherpas and they they'll lay the foundation down they'll put the all the necessary the, they'll put up kitchens and like all the different base camps and they'll the tents and um what else they basically lay the foundation for the climbers to get to the summit and this and the you know 
it's it's extremely difficult. I'm not downplaying it, but for the climber that reaches the top, the Sherpa will reach like the top in a, like four, five, six times in a season, right? Just to put everything down, and he's carrying like two, I don't know, a hundred pounds. And they just have, don't have a problem doing it. Like some of these Sherpas, they've summited, uh, I don't know how many times, but more than any other Westerner. And uh, oh, yeah. they just don't, I think they don't get enough credit of how unbelievable, it, it, it's human endurance at its at its finest. It's unbelievable what they can do. Oh yeah, it's amazing what the human body can do and can adjust to as well. Yeah. I, I did I did watch a documentary about this. I can't remember. It was a very long time ago, but they did... Um, they did blood tests on, on, I think it might've been Sherpas and they could see that they actually have more red blood cells than, than a person living at sea level has. So their body has actually adjusted. And, um, I'm pretty sure it, it's not like, it's not even evolutionary. Maybe evolution has something to do with it, but, um, even if a person who is born and, and raised and never been at altitude, moves to a high altitude place, eventually their body does adjust. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's amazing how the human body can uh, endure and, and adapt to, to difficult living situations. Although, to be fair, um, humans are probably um, the least adaptable, or one of the least adaptable animals. You think? Oh, yeah. I think we're the most adaptable. Perhaps when we use our brains, but I think yeah. biologically um, or physically, you know, when we, we live in houses, we, we have to have a, a certain ideal temperature in our homes to feel comfortable. We need a certain amount of food every day and sleep. Um, oh, well, modern human is just, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's it, yeah, most of us would not survive two days in, in a jungle. But like you said, our brains have let us I mean, we've essentially conquered the world. Now that it's not that I'm saying it in a proud way or a good way, I'm just saying like humans have conquered every land, every height, every depth, every weather. Like we've just we're and we've adapted. We've built houses. We've built industry. I think we're very adaptable. Yeah, technology allows us to do that. Um, yeah. The technology that we've built, well, not me yeah. personally, but yes, it's it's pretty incredible. And I think this is a it's a really great time now um, for for things to be safer, let's say. I don't know if more things are necessarily possible. Some of the things that you hear about um, early explorers doing, um, whereas some people can't do that today. But adding in, you know, all this safety equipment, GPS or emergency oxygen, all of this all of these things to help us plan. In scuba diving, we use dive computers, um, which are essentially like tiny little computers that you wear on your wrist, like a watch. And it will, it, I mean, it's not magic, um, but it, it, it's what we use now to plan our dives and to get it to the surface safely. Whereas before dive computers, they had to do everything on paper with tables um, it's like using a, a calculator versus yeah. using a pencil and paper. Yeah. Like an abacus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, it worked. Um, 
there's always a funny story. I don't even know. I remember I have um back home, I have a Ukrainian friend and he, he used to tell me the story all the time. He loved it. I actually do not know if it's a true story, but I just found it funny. He was saying that when, um, you know, NASA was was sending astronauts to space, they were trying to come up with this pen that would write when people are upside down, right? Because of obviously gravity and stuff. And uh, they, you know, they spent all this money and eventually they found this pen that would write upside down. And then when the Russians did it, they just sent the astronauts with a pencil. Oh, just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I always find that story true. Uh, funny. I don't know if it's true. Don't email me. I'm just saying it's, it's, a, funny, uh, it's a funny little story. Yeah, that is irony for you. Yeah. So do you do any um, freediving as well? I do. I really enjoy freediving. I don't teach it. I'm not a, an instructor for freediving. Um, I guess I haven't dedicated too much time to it, but I do it for fun. Um, and where I'm working is the perfect place for freediving, really. Is freediving one of the more dangerous dives just because you, you have no... Um you know, no tank. Well, I mean, I think when you, you can label, for example, technical diving as more dangerous, but I think it's subjective. I think it's, it depends on the situation. It depends on the person. Free diving can be dangerous. Um, if you're not, if you don't follow your training properly, or if you don't understand how, um, the biology of it, the physics of it works. Yeah. Um, it's, I suppose it can be um, dangerous in some situations, just as um, going in a swimming pool can be dangerous if you don't know how to swim, when you don't have a float, um, or you know if there is a wave machine. So all of these different factors make up. Um, oh, those wave machines! I hate them. Yeah, <laughs> I never <laughs> like them actually. No, no. Um, well, I, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of waves, to be honest, at all. I. I'm really the one of the reasons why I live where I live or I work where I work, um, which is Bunaka National Park in North Sulawesi, Indonesia. It's actually the most one of the most northern tips of Indonesia. It's um it's a couple of degrees from the equator. So it's paradise. The weather is beautiful most of the year. Warm water. Oh yes, it's um I don't know what Fahrenheit it is, but it's uh, roughly twenty nine to thirty degrees Celsius. Um, wow, water that's temperature. probably like uh, in the eighties, uh, roughly. It's probably well, only in the eighties. I'll 80s. have to trust you. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know either to be honest. That's the only one where I didn't adapt. I'm like I'm sticking with Celsius. I'm not I'm not adapting. Miles and all the others fine, but I'll, I'm sticking to Celsius. Yeah, so I suppose everyone can Google it. Thirty degrees yeah. Celsius. It's yeah. warm enough. To wear a swimsuit. I mean, I see people um, swimming in swimsuits in sometimes in the UK, you know. I, but I think they're mad. Yeah. Um, for me, for me, I dive in a wetsuit. Um, but this is warm enough to to let's say snorkel or free dive in a swimsuit or a skin suit um, if you want to. And um, it's pretty flat most of the time. Good no visibility. Way. So quite crystal clear water most days, um, shallow reefs. So, you know, you're not, and, and the reefs go from the island because the islands um, traditionally were originally volcanic islands. So the reefs start very close to land and then drop down very deep, uh, eventually very deep. But um, in between the two, the reefs are, are quite shallow. 
Um, so it's really easy to access from the beach. You don't have to take a boat, although most of the time I think it's a safer option. And then you have more choice of where to go. But it's very close. And um, there's no, you know, dropping down into the middle of the ocean where you can't see any land, um, which I think can be scary for some people. Yeah. Um, certainly me when I started diving, that that's what scared me. Um, but yeah, free diving there is is quite amazing. So free diving, um, if anyone doesn't know, it's, I suppose, just like snorkeling, um, except from you hold your breath and you duck under the water and you dive under the water. That's essentially free diving or apnea, some people call it. Um, it's holding your breath underwater. Is there a goal of um, going as deep as possible or holding your breath for as long as possible? Or it's just free? enjoying for me, being free? For me, it's just, for me, it's exactly what you just said. It's enjoying being free. Um, but free diving as a sport, especially compared to scuba diving, um, is a competitive sport traditionally. It's actually very, very common. And people do it all over the world, not just in warm countries. Um, and so there are two main aspects, physical aspects to free diving. The first one is breath holding. Um, and breath holding, you can practice while static, which is what we call statics, which is usually done in a pool or pool-like conditions where you don't move at all. You just lie in the water face down and you hold your breath. Um, that's quite competitive. And then you have um, dynamic breath holding, which is when you're swimming underwater, um, you know, for a certain length or a certain depth. Um, and then there is, um, I suppose, a depth rating where people compete to how deep they can go whilst they're holding their breath. I don't do any of that. I, I have, I do practice, um, but I'm not competitive. I'm not really competitive. I, I don't really have anyone to compete with because there aren't that many free divers around. But um, um, what's your best time? My my best time. So I, I don't know dynamic what my best time is because I just go free diving so much for fun, and I generally don't look at my record afterwards or look check yeah. my dive computer. Um, but my best time holding my breath static in the swimming pool is three minutes and I think maybe 15 seconds, something like that, wow. um, which sounds Good. like a long time. If I tell yeah. anyone else, they think it's, it sounds like a really long time, but in the world of free diving, it's, it's very average or very beginner. Some of these people can hold their breath for a lot, lot longer, how, how, which I think is crazy. I, I'm, you know, I don't even know. I think maybe ten to fifteen seven, minutes eight, is a good time. Fifteen you wouldn't minutes? Yes, you wouldn't believe. And there, I mean, there are people around the world. I don't know if they're competitive freedivers, um, but there are sea gypsies living in all living all around the world, mostly in um, the tropics. Mm -hmm. um, these people can hold their breath for even longer than that, maybe. 18 minutes, I think, or, or 20 minutes. Jeez. I'm sure. Don't quote me on it. I'm sure. Yeah, Google. yeah. Don't, don't, don't send a hate emails. Uh, we're, we, we're, <laughs> this is it. But, you know, I remember, now that you mentioned it, I remember I was watching some documentary on Netflix where, and it's so funny, like humans are just so competitive in nature. It's like, I can walk, no, I can walk better than you. And then they make a competition. I, I can breathe, like whatever we do, there's someone that's like, no, I can do it better. And then there's somehow we make a competition out of it. But um, there was a documentary where people 
where, uh, like you said, there was a competition uh, for who can go. I believe it was the deepest um, free dive. And there was like a cable. It was connected all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And they were pulling, you know, they were going uh, down using the cable. But the thing I remember was, which oh, was actually kind of difficult to, to watch, because it was so deep and I, I guess for such an extended period of time, when they were coming back up, they were convulsing when they got to the top. Have you, have you ever seen something like that? It was, I, it was tough to watch. Yes, I have seen it. That's um, that's basically because these people are diving down deep on only one single breath. Um, what happens is eventually their body uh, metabolizes the oxygen that that's in that breath and um, creates carbon dioxide. And generally, these convulsions don't come on from a lack of oxygen, but more from an excess of carbon dioxide. So it's just um, a mammalian reaction. It's something that we can't help that our bodies do on its own, which is contract the chest and try to force us to breathe. Our bodies are pretty amazing in that way. Um, so if you were on the surface, this could save your life. Unfortunately, if you're underwater, and you give in to those convulsions and you take a breath that you so desperately want, well, then you're going to breathe in water. So training for freediving means um, holding your breath long enough to feel these contractions. And it's different for everyone, and it's different on different days and in different environments um, and different situations. But when you feel those convulsions, um, there, there is, it, there's kind of a conditioning that you have to do with your brain and your body. It's just to, to, to try and get your, to tell your brain, to tell your body, to, to hold on a minute, yeah. that, that you're fine, that you know, you, you're not in danger, that you're, hopefully you have a buddy with you or a safety team with you that can be there just in case something bad happens. But that's um, basically how we deal with convulsions is you just practice, you get used to it. Eventually those convulsions will come a bit later. Um, but even if they don't, um, if you practice enough times, you know, and you can tell yourself as well that you've done it before and that you can kind of fight through it. I, I guess it's kind of like getting, um, what, what they say in like running when you hit the wall, yeah. you know, this mental block physically, it's possible to stay, to keep running just the same as physically, it's possible to keep holding your breath. Um, it depends how long you can do it, of course. Um, but it's just about making sure that your brain, your body work in harmony to make sure you don't do anything silly, like take a breath of water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty incredible if you think about it, how through repetition, how, because there's a few things that are just inherently both dangerous and frightening for us, right? Um, not being able to breathe is is frightening, right? Like you just, you freak out, <gasps> can't take a breath. And um, let's say, you, you know who Alex Honnold is? The climber? No, I don't. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, he, he so he climbed uh, all these massive uh, um, boulders in uh, Yosemite. He climbed El Cap. I think it's like, I don't remember the, the height, 3,000 or, or 5,000 feet. It's massive. Uh, free soloed it basically not connected to anything and and you watch the video you're 
your <laughs> palms start to sweat. It's just him. It's like the sheer drop down. And for any human, it's it, it's frightening, right? To fear heights. And it's the same with maybe fighters. Most people are afraid to get into a fist fight. But if you look at like MMA fighters or boxers, they, they'll take a punch. It's nothing to them. They get knocked out. They get up. It, it's crazy through repetitions that we're able to overcome what seemed to be just biologically things that we're not able to do. It is. I mean, I think, I feel like it's repetition is obviously good for training your body, training the physical side of it. But I feel like depending on what it is, but definitely in scuba diving, maybe also the same in climbing, it's it's also training your brain um, how to deal with this situation. And um, the more you do it, the more normal it's going to be the more you're going to have those memories there and um, the perhaps the easier it will become. Do you meditate? Um, I, I try, let's say. I try. <laughs> I find it hard. I find I it very too. hard to switch off. Um, I have an app on my phone which really helps. Um, so I do that usually just before I go to sleep every night. It helps me fall asleep. Um, yeah. But you're big into yoga, right? I I do. I I am a lover of yoga. Again, I'm not an expert um, of yoga either, but it's just something that I do recreationally just for myself for fun. Yeah. I because a lot of times those two go hand in hand. And I, I I'm it's funny that you say I try because I try as well. I know I know the benefits of meditation. Um I just I've tried it a bunch of times and I've tried a few different people. Uh the only one that I kind of was able to get into was um sam harris's app that uh, you know i tried it a couple of times like okay i think i could get into this but yeah like you said it's it's hard for me to switch off as well it's uh it's difficult i think it's different for different people and i think sometimes when especially if you've never meditated and you hear about meditation or if i recommend oh i think you know i think you should try some meditation people just think it's about like like you said, it's about uh, a yogi maybe sitting on a yoga mat with incense yeah. and chanting and weird bells, music, and things like that. <laughs> necessarily have to be that. If you if you actually define meditation or look up about the core um, parts of meditation, it's actually being aware of your body, aware of your breathing, aware of your surroundings. Because if if everyone is like me, if you know what I'm talking about, when when you're thinking about things, you're generally not so in tune with your direct surroundings, your direct environment, and you're also not living right in the moment. Most people, when they're lost in thought, they're thinking about the past or they're thinking about the future or they're thinking about some hypothetical non-time events or thoughts uh, happening, going on, or they're trying to work something out, or they're watching uh, a television program. They're not really um, present. And I think meditation, for me at least, is about being present. And so meditation can come in many forms. Um, I don't, let's say I'm getting more success with listening to apps um, recently because I can't go outside much and I can't be in nature much. Um, but generally for me, um, I would even class going for a walk in the woods meditation or definitely going scuba diving meditation. That's what I was going to ask. 
Yeah, as long as you're not listening, if you're listening to a podcast, perhaps, or if you're um, having a conversation, um, maybe it's different. But for me, when I go for walks, I like to just um, leave the headphones away and and really look for things. You know, if I go into the woods, I'll look for bugs or I will um, listen out for birds or something like that. Yeah, I, animals, I think, really help because... Most of the time when you look at animals, especially wild animals, they seem to be really in tune with what's going on right now um, in their bodies and in the environment. And I think we can take a leaf from their book sometimes because as a human being living in this century, in this part of the world, I think it's increasingly stressful. There's so many terrible things happening in the world that we know about, of course, because of the news and the internet. Um, but also we have so many responsibilities, um, you know, paying rent and feeding ourselves or our children or studying or work, all of these things, um, which can weigh a person down. And um, meditation, being able to just be aware of the moment and enjoy um, the, just the feeling of being able to breathe fresh air, something like that, um, or, you know, being scuba diving on a reef and just being present at that time. Um, I think it's it can be like a, a spring clean for your mind, let's say. It yeah. can be a break, you know, from, yeah. from regular stress. Well, you have um, this beautiful thing that you wrote. I believe it was Instagram. Um, most people think of the ocean as a vast body of water. I think of it as a parallel universe. And when I enter that universe... I'm a different version of me. The world upstairs suddenly doesn't exist and I'm falling into a deep dream in a liquid dimension where there's no Wi-Fi, no bills, no wars, and no suffering. And uh, I thought that was a cool little abstract way to look at it. Almost these two worlds that exist in our world. It's the world upstairs where everything is happening here on the ground with... uh, you have to pay your bills and you have to go to work and you have to stay in traffic and you have to, I don't know, shovel the the, the driveway, which I've been doing this morning, which is actually kind of fun. And then um, there's this whole other world that we know. I mean, we know a lot about it, but we still don't know a lot about it as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a completely different universe in a way. I feel that that's exactly how I feel. I, I definitely wrote that maybe just probably while I was still on the boat, um, probably just after a dive. Yeah, that's, it's, I don't really think about things when I'm diving or free diving or snorkeling. My mind is generally not on anything in particular, let's say. Um, It's my form of meditation. So I'm usually right there in the moment. And afterwards, um, I guess when the adrenaline's kind of wearing off, but I'm still excited about what I've experienced or what I've seen, it's difficult to try and explain that feeling. Um, and yeah, so that's that was my attempt of putting it into words. I, I have a different description every single time. You know, it's not exactly the same, but yeah. I do think that um, being underwater, especially if you're scuba diving because you can stay down for longer than if you're just holding your breath. I mean, unless you're one of these water gypsies or yeah. competitive freedivers. Um, but it's 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 kind of like um, when I say a different 
universe or a, a different version of myself, I think it's for me personally, perhaps even the truest version of myself because I don't have the pressures of society or um, of regular everyday life on my mind at that time. So I can just be me and with no uh, expectations either. Um, you know, you, it's not easy to communicate with other people underwater. Um, so you don't have any pressure to uh, hold a conversation about anything at all. You can just kind of uh, in your mind, you know, be alone, be free, be just enjoy the moment. And um, yeah, I think that's probably how I, I would describe it. I think that's why sports and even maybe more adventure sports are so important because everyone that, let's say if it's, um, I don't know, someone that does base jumping or skydiving or mountaineering, rock climbing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they all, they all um, portray a very similar story. Like when I'm there, I'm in the element, uh, it's just me, you know, and, and, and it's exactly like you said, and it's this world or a um it's a world that you build for yourself or maybe just a world that you set yourself apart from for those minutes or hours and i think especially now when everyone's just in their homes uh doing zoom calls all day and uh you know with their spouse with their kids and maybe just going a little bit insane um I think a hobby like this, again, whatever it is that you're into underwater, or above water, is something people should try to adopt a little bit more. Oh, yeah. I, I, I couldn't recommend it enough. I, scuba diving isn't for everyone, but there has to be, there, there's usually something for everyone. Everyone will find what their passion is, what their niche is. And it's just about, you know, being brave enough and setting aside time to go out there and just try it. You know, most of these sports or these activities have introductory programs where you can just go there. You know, you don't have to do any serious training or studying or um, preparation. You just turn up and you try it out and see if it's for you. And I think the reason maybe what, what all of these things have in common is that when you're out there and you're doing this whatever it is, climbing or mountaineering or or sailing or whatever the sport is, is that your priorities change. Your priority, your main priorities aren't about answering that email or, you know, that meeting that you've got on Monday or anything else that's on your mind. Usually um, it's your priority is depending on what the sport is, but sometimes in these adventurous sports is staying alive. That's kind of important. Yeah. And believe it or not, it takes up a lot of space in your brain. And um, it, not necessarily in a bad way. I think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's more natural uh, of a feeling um, for me personally to feel, I think when you're thinking about staying alive, you end up feeling more alive. Um, that's just for me. Um, but I think a, a lot of people might agree. Oh, 100%. When you're so hyper-focused, hyper-aware of your surroundings, because like you said, it's, it's. I mean, I don't want to sound too, hy too hyperbole, but it is life or death in certain instances. You become very, um, 
very centered, very, I don't, I don't want to sound too agey, but very, um, yeah, very grounded, very centered, very, yeah, very aware, focused. very focused. Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, let's talk a little bit more about environmental issues. Uh, I know it's something you're passionate about. What do you think are, uh, or what do you think is the most pressing issue as far as the ocean is concerned right now? Is it ocean acidification, overfishing? Is it plastic, coral bleaching? Is it all of the above? What's yeah. in your opinion? So that's that's the question, isn't it? That's that's. It seems like that is the question. What is the most important issue that we can focus on? And I think one of the biggest issues, I don't know whether this is just today or just in general, with um, society and dealing with environmentalism is that a lot of the time things are very polarized. It's either this is very good and this is very bad and there's no in-between or this is the most important issue and we need to focus on this. Like when when I talk about my thoughts on environmentalism and creating a balance and perhaps, you know, I don't eat fish um, and I, so I don't contribute or I try not to contribute to the effects of fishing on the ocean, which is, you know, 50% of the plastic in the ocean right now is fishing nets and fishing lines and, and ghost gear. You know, it all comes from the fishing industry and that's half of the plastic in the ocean. So if we didn't have the industrial fishing industry, then we would half the amount of plastic in the ocean. Um, so that I think is a major issue, but again, it's not the most important because we still have to consider fossil fuels, you know, or animal agriculture, which um, animal agriculture is, um, I think, one of the leading causes of ocean acidification and um, ocean dead zones as well. Um, that counts also fish farms. Yeah. But there, there isn't, I think for me, there's not just one main issue. There are some things that are easier, I would say, to address than others. And then there are other way, other things that are far too complicated and um, perhaps can't be affected too much by the individual, in which case it's going to have to be government policies and um, environmental scientists that lead the way. And um, I'm not an environmental scientist. I only know what everybody else knows, like whatever you yeah. can find on social media or whatever you can see in a documentary on Netflix or YouTube. That's all that I know, really. Yeah. Um, but the way that I approach environmentalism is I just try to use logic. Um, I just try to assess the facts and think about um, a logical way that I can perhaps make a difference or at least make a difference for me. And um, I just try my best. I mean, when I talk to people about plastic um, in the ocean being 50% made up of uh, fishing gear, I don't expect someone to turn around immediately and say, okay, well, let's ban fishing. Let's just stop all fishing um, right now because that's just not realistic. Um, and even changing, for example, your diet or where you buy your fish or, you know, there are so many different factors and, and ways to make a difference. Um, but for me, the logical response is just, well, I don't need to eat fish. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to 
die or be ill if I don't consume it. Um, and there are plenty of other alternatives. So for me personally, not eating fish is the most logical um, way to respond. It's the, the most logical path for me to help the ocean. Um, that's not the only way, of course. You know, there's also reducing plastic consumption, which personally I think is the most difficult because it's something that we deal with every single day. It's it's probably impossible to live without. Um, it's on every corner of the planet now, and we use it for for everything. I mean, your computer has plastic in it. Every every everything, your clothes everything. have plastic. Your yeah. food probably has plastic in it. It's I think it's more about um, being aware, being open to learning new things, being open to be challenged about what beliefs you already hold. Um, so just being aware that science evolves, things change, and there's a possibility that you might be doing something that's harming the environment, um, or you might be able to do something that helps the environment. and making an effort to learn about these things. And even if you aren't going to change, at least even sharing this knowledge with other people could make a difference. And I think it's all about a balance and it's all about being realistic and just trying your best, you know, to, to lead each day with awareness and compassion um, and responsibility. Um, that for me, I would say is, is the the main driver of what keeps me, um, what makes me let, uh, an environmentalist, an ocean conservationist. That's why I felt like the um, the whole straw campaign, uh, like stop sucking or whatever the the tagline was, um, just felt a little bit not authentic. Specifically, I mean, when 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 I think it's like. 0.1% of plastic in the ocean is through is because of straws, right? That's 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 absolutely nothing. It's just a lot of virtue signaling with very little con actual consequences in real life. And um it's I remember people walking around with like a metal straw, it's like, look at me, I'm an environmentalist. I'm like, uh, okay, sure. Like if that, you know, maybe if that's the um the gateway drug for you to do other things, that's great. But I think it's not. I think a lot of people love to virtue signal, right? They'll take this little thing and they'll show how they're, they've done their part. But meanwhile, like you said, literally every other aspect of your day is just packed with plastic. Literally everything from the moment you wake up to the hair product, to the cosmetics, to the food, to how you drive and how you get to places, your phone, everything. So that little straw doesn't do much. Again, if it is that gateway drug that kind of like propels you forward into thinking, all right, what else can I do? What else can I change? Then that's great. But it just seemed like, I don't know, it, it didn't do, it. it's not asking a lot of you to change your straw. It, that's really, it's really no, not a lot. You know what I, I mean? Like, yeah, go ahead. But I think that's part of the point of it as well. I think uh, this virtue signaling is kind of a necessary evil. It's uh, annoying. And um, I suppose <laughs> switching out just one straw and nothing else, it, it isn't enough. Of course, it's not enough. Um, but I think human beings are 
difficult creatures. I think, you know, it's when you think about your impression on the world, it's very different to the world's impression on you. Mm-hmm. And if someone approaches you tomorrow and said, everything that you've been doing is all wrong, you have to change everything right now, otherwise you're doing something very bad. Um, your natural response to that might just be a defense mode where you go, well, hang on a second, I'm not going to take this attack. It's not fair. Um, and no one told me before, and this is just the way it's always been. So why do I have to change it just because you say so? And I think, um, the plastic straw campaign, um, was good to increase people's awareness of ocean plastic and the effects on, um, animals in the ocean and the effects of plastic and microplastics. And it was a very easy way for people to, it was a very easy change for people to make. But I think there is a danger, of course, of greenwashing, um, where, you know, you, you go to a Starbucks tomorrow and they don't, oh no, we don't serve plastic straws anymore. We have these paper straws. And, um, I, it's been a while since I've been there, but I did go to a Starbucks about a, a year and a half ago, um, in Indonesia and at the counter, they had a pot of straws, paper straws, um, because they didn't serve plastic straws anymore, but they were wrapped individually in plastic. In plastic. <laughs> and then the cups, of course, are still plastic with plastic lids. Yeah. So, I mean, even the, the hot coffee cups are lined with plastic. They're really difficult to recycle. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it can be a way for companies um, um, to green or even individuals to greenwash and and to virtue signal. Um, but I think it's when it comes to human behavior, the only way to do it is slowly and gradually. The only sure way to do it, because I mean, unless there is all of a sudden a revolution, I don't see every single person in the Western world, for example, waking up tomorrow saying, you know, I'm never going to use single use plastic again. Because unfortunately, it just it's not realistic. It just doesn't work like that. You have to work down the the supply chain. Um, of course, these these it's usually very very few, very very large, rich, successful uh, international corporations and companies that supply most of the things that we use on a day to day basis: our food, our medicine. Um, the products that we use, the technology, the gadgets and things like that. And these companies um, are what providing uh, providing plastic to the world. And I think, you know, it's a slow process that we have to go through. We'll say, first of all, we're thinking about, you know, plastic straws and how they're harming um, turtles or harming reefs. And then more people catch on to it and then it becomes a thing maybe on Twitter or um, Facebook um, where people are like, well, you know what, we should ban plastic straws. And then one small coffee shop says, okay, we're not serving plastic straws anymore. And then the bigger places catch on. And then eventually the whole world has banned plastic straws. And the same thing is happening with plastic bags. And although they're only, like you said, a very, very minute percentage of the plastic in the ocean, um, it still makes a difference. And I think that's, one good thing about the straw initiative is that people realize that they don't have to go 100% of the way into being waste-free, plastic-free, vegan, living off the land, 
you know, never you're cycling everywhere. It, it's it can be the small changes that make the difference if enough people do it. Yeah, we just like convenience too much. Oh uh, yeah, we, we, we're at, we're at a point where just even the most little inconvenience could just uh, there's people that just have mental breakdowns like oh I can't believe I have to do so and so. It's like it's not that big a deal, man. Like our our lives are so easy. Again, not everyone. I don't want to. But most people in the Western world, are, their lives are fairly easy compared to any other time throughout our human history that, I don't know, it's just, I don't know why it's that hard. You know, there was um, there was a, a blue bot. I don't know if you have them in, in, in Europe, but here there's a pretty big and, and, actually, and actually one of the best coffees, Blue Bottle. Uh, it's a pretty big chain by now. And that they were going to go, I believe, in 2020, in the beginning of 2020, they were supposed to go uh, only, so they would only use the cups that people would bring in. So only the reusable cups, they wouldn't sell you if you didn't have a cup. Like the idea was that they're not going to sell you coffee anymore, right? They're not going to sell the single use ones. COVID started, all that's out the window, right? So even like companies with good intentions Unfortunately, something like COVID happens and it's all out the window. That is, that was something that actually I, I didn't consider when the pandemic first started. And um, because I've for a few years or maybe longer now, I've always taken my own cup to the, the coffee shop. But um, yeah, then when that happened, it was very unfortunate. Um, I think I think we're lucky in the fact that it will be over soon. Or someday. I hope so, man. I really hope so. It's uh, it literally changed every. I mean, I, I don't know how it is in Europe. I'm assuming it's it's pretty similar, but it's changed every facet of our lives. If you if you really think about it, like the way we purchase things, the way we work, the way we interact with friends and family, the way we have podcast interviews, the way just everything, literally every facet of our life has changed. Oh yeah, it's a difficult transition. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day when I was growing up, and I'm sure you're the same. Um, I didn't have a, a mobile phone, or if I did, it was just uh, for texting, basic things. I didn't have internet on my phone until I think I was maybe 20, 19 or 20 years old, which I guess, you know, isn't that bad. But, you know... I, I was I was telling my friend um, about when I had my first real job and when I had when I my first went to university and I moved to a new place you know out of my parents' house and um, I needed to find the way to get to my where my job interview was and I went on to I did have a laptop and I did have the internet um, and I went on to uh, on the internet and found a map and then I got a piece of A4 paper and a pencil, and I drew them up <laughs> myself by hand. And then, you know, I got, <laughs> exactly, I, I went out, I got on the uh, bus or the train, and then I got out of the station, I unfolded this piece of paper from my pocket. And and you know what? No one noticed. I don't think they noticed. It was perfectly <laughs> normal back then. So Urban now, explorer. Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> technology makes our lives so much easier. I think without technology this pandemic would be would hit a lot of people much harder. Of course, not everyone is lucky enough to have access to the same technology, even in the West, you know, even in the States or, or Canada and even in Europe. 
um, there are still, unfortunately, children who um, can't keep up with their schoolwork because they don't have good enough internet connection or they don't have the right computer um, gadgets and things like that. But I do think that we're really lucky now to have all these things. And um, I think it's being a savior. Uh, um, and I think it's also being locked inside has been has given people time to reflect on their lives and even change their lives. You know, maybe, maybe even change their career, study something new, um, try new hobbies. And it forces people as much as it forces us apart um, because we can't directly physically interact with other people or most other people. It's also forced us to do things like this um, podcast, which is the first time I've ever done it. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And usually when I'm at work in Indonesia, the internet connection isn't good enough to hold a conversation for more than maybe a 30 minutes or so. And that's okay. at the right spot of the island, you know, yeah. right on the cliff. And so Holding um, the computer in a certain yeah. angle. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely one of the differences that I would say is a good and a bad thing. Like I enjoy, I don't, I'm, I have to say, I haven't suffered that much during this pandemic because I'm really, really lucky with everything that I have. Um, and I'm really lucky to have a home and not to be worrying about the next, where the next meal comes from and all sorts of things like that. Um, but without having this connection of the internet and the phone to keep in contact with people and also just have something to do and something to watch, you know, like Netflix and YouTube, um, with, without it, I mean, I don't really have to imagine because that's my usual work life. Um, when I'm in Indonesia, I don't usually have access to the internet um, 24 hours a day. It's at certain times of the day in certain spots on the island. And um, mentally, it's it, emotionally and, and mentally, it's a very different um, experience going through each day like that. Knowing here, for example, that my phone could ring at any moment. Um, and there's always uh, so many notifications going off at, at every single time. And there's so many platforms. Like it's, it's not a normal thing for someone to sit in their own house yeah. and not have some kind of screen to look at yeah. Yeah. Um, at some point in the day. I mean, even if you're not really even looking at a screen, you can be playing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, I, and I don't usually do that in Indonesia. I usually spend most of my day uh, well, the days differ sometimes I'm in the office, but when, you know, when I am a diving or teaching day, I'll spend um, most of the day outside, um, which I think is, I Much think is better. Yeah. It's not for everyone. Um, but I think it, it takes time to adapt to it. But, and as long as the people that you know, and, or let's say work with, or your family know that they can't reach you, you know, at any time of the day wherever you are, because that's what people think now, that if you don't pick up your phone, um, that something terrible has happened to you, right? Because everyone's yeah. got their phone in their they hand must be dead. all the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I like to routinely, you know, I, I like to have set times during the day where I check my social media, where I check my emails, where I schedule phone calls or, um, or, or Zoom calls or whatever they are, or meetings and things like that. And then I will let people know, you know, this is the time where you can reach me from this hour to this hour. And, 
you know, off, outside of that, I can't guarantee. I'll, I'll try. If I have signal, I'll, I'll pick it up. Or if I'm not busy, I'm not diving. But generally, this is the time that I'm available. Or if you want to schedule a call, let's pick a day, let's pick a time. And um, I think that it could, I think that everyone could benefit from this, to be honest, um, because I just find, you know, the, the problem with screens and the internet is that it's never ending. You know, it's, it's, it's always there and there's always more of it all the time. And focusing too much on, it depends what it is, but for me, it's the news that I can't get away from the news. I'm, I always have the news on in the background and I'm always listening to the news if I'm not watching it. And um, I only recently learned how to switch that off and just say, you know what, people are going to ask me about it. I'm sure, you know, I'm going to call my mom and she's going to, oh, did you see about this thing that happened? Yeah. And I'm just going to have to say, no, I didn't. Uh, no, I'm not updated. No, I don't know about that thing that's happening at the other side of the world because I need that for my own sanity. <laughs> It's news porn. It's uh, that's that's so funny that you say that's literally when I call my parents, it's like, oh, did you hear? And I'm like, it's the first thing like they'll tell me about something in the news. I'm like, I don't care. I, I I'll be honest. I um, I I agree with pretty much everything you said, and um, I do think people should be outside much more. And uh, I don't I don't even think it's a maybe some people are not used to it. I think they'll benefit massively from it. Just even a couple of hours, like no one's ever gone on a walk with their dog or on a hike or, uh, I don't know, spend some time uh, in the meadow and come back and, oh, that was a waste of time. No, you're always benefiting from that somehow, either, either it's from vitamin D from the sun or just getting some fresh air or exercising. It's always good. But as far as the, the social media aspect, personally, I have been um, gradually eliminating news from my uh from what i consume it's the news is not there to inform you anymore it's there to scare us for the most part it's there to divide us it's there to tell us about how people on the other side of the political aisle are bad and it just it's it's very bad it's it's not what it used to be maybe 10 or 15 years ago it's um very motivated by financial incentive by political incentives by certain agendas that they try to push. Um, so I just try to eliminate that as much as possible. I'm, I'm not naive. I still know what's happening in the world. But like you said, like you're um, capping the amount of social media, I cap the amount of news. And social media is it's maybe even scarier because right now we're in this attention economy and they're trying to grab us our attention. Like their whole thing is we want you to stay on our platforms for as long as possible. So we're going to give you the most uh, salacious, something that's going to grab your attention and make you react. And unfortunately, even all of us know, right? All of us know that they're essentially spying on us, that they have all our information, that they're aware of everything that we're doing, that they know where we are. Yet we keep giving them all our information. We keep using like it's 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 a drug. Unlike oh, yeah. any other drug where we're not able to let go of it or stop using it. I think that's the I think that's the problem. It is an addiction. It is a drug. But I think that, you know, because we we actually I don't think we're really aware of the long-term effects. Um, not just with our information, but I mean on our brains and our bodies and our lives, because it's so Especially new. On kids. Oh my God. When, when I was a kid, I didn't have social media. We had, yeah. we just about had the internet with a dial up. 
Um, yeah. And even then I, I rarely used it. So I, I did get a Facebook account when it first opened and I think I was 14. And what I remember of Facebook back then is you had one picture on your Facebook, only one. You had your profile picture and you could change it once a week. And then once you changed it, the old one was gone. And the same with your status. And then people could write on your wall maybe, um, but there was no commenting on things or liking things. And there was no endless amount of videos and pictures and and thoughts going out there. It was just like, um, it was just very basic. And thinking about how it's evolved to now where, you know, they're not just feeding you news, they're, they're feeding you exactly what they want you to see for very specific reasons. And I think that's something that is definitely, we need more education on that. I, I don't know if they teach that in schools now, but they definitely should. Yeah. Uh, they, should teach, they should teach people who have left school already because I need to know about what cookies are and, and uh, all about all these data protection acts and things like that. I don't think the law is really kept up. Um, just yet, at least. And I don't think that the lawmakers even really understand um, the science of it yet. Um, but oh, I They're think, oblivious. Yeah. But I, I mean, I do think it will change. I think actually the next generation are going to be the ones to change it. I think we're perhaps too old for that now. And I mean, unless you're in IT already. But I, I think these younger people, you know, they're they, they've grown up with technology. They've grown up with the internet and social media. I think that it's not necessarily that, that we're dumb because we're using it, but I think it's just a choice that we're willing to make. You know, a lot of people choose to eat chocolate or cake, even though we know it's not good for us. You know, it's full of sugar or fat and oil and things like that. We know it's not healthy, but we enjoy the experience of eating it. And this is, I think it's the same with social media. I mean, I think people are mostly aware that it's not uh, a healthy thing to, to do even at all, or maybe just all the time. I don't know. Well, I think in moderation, I think, I, I, I think, yeah, definitely in, in moderation. I mean, I use it, I would say in moderation. Um, I'm not the type of person that will scroll through like feeds and things like that. My problem is that they never end. And so if they don't end, I don't know where to end. I don't know where to stop. So I have to stop myself. So I just, I, I go specifically maybe on a few friends pages and I, I check them out and then I'll make plans to do something after that, or I'll make a plan to call someone. So I know I'm not going to get stuck in that kind of quicksand of social yeah. media. Um, <laughs> But I do think that it can be a positive thing because um, then we get to, of course, in a situation like this, we get to interact with people. Um, we get to share things with people that they might not already know about. Personally, I like using social media to talk about diving and to talk about um, social or environmental issues, just things that are on my mind. Um, I don't have a personal um, social media account and I don't have uh, either on Facebook or Instagram or any platform. Um, I usually only use it, let's say for work purposes, even though mm -hmm. it's not necessarily part of my job. I just use it for, for my professional, uh, let's say interests. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, if used in moderation, if that's even possible, it is probably net positive because just like you said, it's a great way 
to promote yourself. It's a great way to connect with people. It's a great way to learn about topics. Uh, it's a great way to maybe join communities. There are benefits to it. Uh, the only problem is it's the whole algorithm is wired so that you spend the most amount of time. Just for example, Clubhouse. I don't know if you're aware of this app. It's a brand new app. It launched in 2020, but it was a ba it was based on invite only. It's kind of a town hall. It's all audio, and people are spending literally their whole days on it. I'm like, are you not working? So it's basically you open up these rooms. Let's say you open a room about diving, right? And then you're the moderator, and then you can invite other divers to talk about this. And then there's all these people that will listen to you, and they and then you can invite them to ask questions or to talk as well. It's very interesting, actually. The problem, just like any problem, is it's susceptible to human nature and humans tend to abuse things or manipulate things to, you know, to gain an advantage, uh, to oh, build yeah. a following, whatever it is that they want. And people are literally spending, I'm not exaggerating, 12, 18 hours a day on that platform. So as far as an attention economy, that's number one. I mean, people are literally spending their whole day building their brand, quote unquote, on this platform. And I'm just thinking like, okay, so Clubhouse is, is the next stage, right? And, and right now it's fairly new. I, I think they have maybe 8 million users at best. So it's new. And, and they built it that way for, for a purpose. Um, but what's next? Like, are, are, are we just going to download our whole lives onto an app eventually and just become all virtual? Like that's, and maybe that's not in our lifetimes, but I don't know. It just, it's. Again, it, there's a lot of net positive. I don't want to sound like all cryptic and, and dystopian. There's a lot of positive, but sometimes the negative aspects of it, uh, you know, they, they scare me a little bit. I think the, the situation that everyone, most people in the world are in right now, as in the pandemic, is definitely an enabler for this type of behavior, this addictive behavior to screens, to social media. Um, to the news, to, like you said, these um, social media apps. And um, for the purposes of, like you said, marketing, I suppose then it's even worse because you can kind of use that as an excuse to spend more time on it. Um, and your excuse is, well, it's work, isn't it? It's You're work, building yeah. a business. Um, I suppose it depends what kind of business that you have. If you have a tech business or if your business is to be um, a, like a, an influencer or, you know, if you are, if you do interviews on podcasts, for example, then that is your work. Um, but a lot of people are using it, especially like we can see in scuba diving um, as like a secondary source of marketing because traditionally it hasn't really been used that much. It's only really a new thing. But the, the irony of it is that we're using screens and social media and um, video editing apps and all this crazy software and this new technology um, to show people how much fun and how amazing it is to get away from all that and go into nature and go somewhere where you don't you know you don't have this technology and um, you you can escape from it. I think it's just very ironic how there's a lot of different avenues now, you know, including meditation and yoga and all sorts of other sports and adventuring and travel where, um, 
they're gaining a lot of following from social media and people are getting, I mean, rich, really rich, making millions um, just during the past year on social media, showing people, you know, how much fun it is to go traveling and leave, you know, leave your home and your screens behind. Um, So I'm curious to see what kind of effect this is going to have after this, um, all the lockdowns and the travel bans end and it's safe again to start traveling or start going outside and, and mingling with other people. Um, I did read recently that, um, there were polls taken out and a lot of people, a huge percentage of people, um, are feeling anxious about going back to work or going back to school, um, or, you know, just going back to outside life where they have to talk to other people and, and, and not be behind a screen the whole time. And so I think that in that way, maybe social media can help. Um, social platforms can help help you interact with other people so that you're not so nervous when you finally do get back out there. Um, because I think secluding yourself, depending on who you are, um, can be, for me, it's very easy because I, I, I enjoy being alone by myself um, in nature. And if I'm going out, you know, walking or hiking, for example, for a day, I I might not need someone else to be a safety net there. So I'll just go out on my own and, um, I can easily slip into it. I I don't feel so uncomfortable, um, with the social distancing. The only issue for me is not being able to go diving or go outside. So I, I don't party. I don't go, um, I don't really like busy places that much. So for me, yeah, uh, not for everyone, but yeah. So it, it's it's not so difficult, and I think the transition's not going to be as as hard. Um, but for some people, um, being alone for extended periods of time, you know, they they might need these this technology and the internet to kind of remind themselves that they're a part of society, that their brain. And, you know, that I think the whole purpose of being on earth is to communicate with other people, um, sharing ideas and sharing emotions and building connections. And um, when you're stuck inside without these things, without the internet, um, it's a very, I think, a difficult, dangerous situation, even potentially. I just hope we come out of this um, just a little bit nicer. You know, I just hope everyone's just a little nicer. Everyone maybe had, you know, some time to reflect, to go inwards, maybe see that, all right, you know, what is important in life? It's family, it's it's your friends, it's uh, maybe following your passions, it's maybe, I don't know, experiencing travel, whatever it is that's, that's good for you. I do hope because it's been kind of uh, ugh, these past few years. So I do hope we're just a little bit better uh, coming out of this, hopefully. Yeah, I, I think that maybe being having this time to for self-reflection, but also for socializing virtually with other people and um, perhaps taking up a new hobby or new interests will motivate people to, when they can, get out there and do something new and, you know, don't delay it and delay it and delay it maybe like you did before. 
Yeah. If you if you want to change your lifestyle, if you you don't want to work in an office anymore, you want to go um, and be a digital nomad, or you want to go and be a dive instructor or a skydiver or whatever you want to do, perhaps this is the time that we're using where it's such an intense um, situation, environment that we're we're living in right now, where we're bombarded constantly by by technology, really. And yet we're all so isolated and alone in our small boxes um, that it might kind of force us to see the extremes. And by seeing this extreme and living in this extreme environment, um, we might realize then that it's not for us um, and hopefully try something new. And I don't know about you, but I am looking forward more than anything to not having to worry about um, catching a virus. That's, it's, yeah. it's just another added pressure, I think. It doesn't matter who you are um, or where you're from. Um, everyone, I think, right now is worrying about being ill or having a family member that's ill or being affected by the virus in some way. And um, I, I had think it, so we I'm, don't I'm need good. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, there's no some mutation. I don't get it for the second time, but so far so good. Not well, you never know. I you mean, never know. There are. I, I did watch a documentary recently. I watch a lot of depressing documentaries. Same. Um, same. I don't know why. I love them. <laughs> they are addictive. Yeah. Um, I feel like yeah. I don't feel guilty about watching TV if I'm watching a documentary because I feel like well, it's educational. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I did watch something that said that there are you know so many new types of zoonotic diseases being discovered every year by scientists. Um, and so this kind of situation may just be a warning for us to reevaluate the practices that we're doing now. So I do know that since the pandemic started a year ago or just over a year ago, um, I'm pretty, I don't know if it's in the EU altogether, but definitely in the Netherlands, they've closed every single mink fur farm that they had because they found, yeah, because they found genetic variations of the coronavirus spreading through mink mink farms because of the conditions that they've been in, which is similar to wet markets where supposedly the virus originated. Yeah, it is horrific, but before coronavirus, not that many people knew about the conditions that these animals were living in. And being forced to live in and die in, um, and now I think what we've re- we've we've obviously taken the situation and gone well. We have two options. We've got one: risk another type of coronavirus shutting down the world again, yeah. or number two, um, we don't make mink coats anymore. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't really I don't really mind if there's no mink coats in the world. I think it's a, the world's going to be a better place without them, or any so, fur coats for them. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, when we're talking about um, this pandemic to reevaluate the, the things that they were when they were what we would call normal, everyone's saying, let's get back to normal. We can't wait to get back to normal. But the way that it was is obviously not the best way that it could be or the healthiest way that it could be for us, for, for nature, um, for the environment. So... Um, I hope that the time that people have had, that most people have had, um, for self-reflection, not just self-reflection, but educating themselves on on what's happening in the world right now and the environment and the planet and the animals um, will help us make better decisions in the future and make the changes that are necessary 
to keep ourselves and all the other animals, you know, from getting a new type of coronavirus. Yeah, hundred percent. Chi, this was a lot of fun. Yes, thank it you. Was. Thank, thank you, you so much. See, look at that. An hour, 35 minutes, just breeze. Oh, wow. That was quick. Yeah. As you can it, see, it's dark here already. <laughs> yeah. No, it, uh, it flew by. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I really had a great time talking to you. Thank you so uh, much for having me. Where can people find you? What are the, some of the best places? Uh, so you can find me on social media um, at, at The Scuba Mermaid um, or my website, which is www.thescubamermaid.com. And if you're in Indonesia, um, it's a big place. But if you're in the very northern tip of Indonesia, um, somewhere near Bunaka National Park, you know, just write me an email, um, get in touch with me on social media, and we hopefully can meet up and have a coffee or go for a dive. <laughs> That's, that sounds awesome. I would love to do that. I actually have, actually have some listeners in Indonesia. So guys, if you're listening, feel free to reach out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I hope to be back there very soon. All right. Awesome. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Chi. Uh, Thank you. We'll stay in touch and maybe we'll do this again in the future. Absolutely. I'd love that. All right. Take care. Take care.